Hello and welcome to This Is Your Life Path, a podcast where I sit down with tabletop game designers and we have a chat about all of the things that have influenced and inspired them away from the tabletop world. I'm your host Kayla, I'm a game designer myself and I publish as Ratwave Gamehouse. I do games all about connection and alienation. I recently put out a remaster of one of my earliest released games, Plural Witchcraft Highland Rampage, where you play a group of Highland witches sharing one body on a mission to rescue someone who you care about. Now to jump into the episode and introduce today's guest. My guest today is the wonderful, multi-talented Mark Shepard. Mark, would you like to introduce yourself? It's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, my name is Mark Stefford. I am uh, a sometimes freelance editor, a sometimes game designer, a sometimes project lead and community manager. Um, people might know my voice from Yes Indeed Pod if they're particularly long memoried. Um, and yeah, I'm just continuing my mission. Uh, to be TTRPG's most horrible goose. So uh, <laughs> that's that's my general aim in life, yeah. Yeah, a worthy, a worthy task. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um can dive right into the questions if you want. Yeah, absolutely. If, I mean, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's quite an honour to be invited onto such a, a fledgling podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> Taking to the skies. Uh, so where did you grow up, Marks? I grew up in Nottingham, which is um for those who don't know, it's quite a small city in the middle of in the middle of England, in the East Midlands. Um and it's famous for well, it's it's, it's famous for Robin Hood, <laughs> which uh, which a lot of people will know about, um, which is always a sort of bone of contention with people from Nottingham. But um, it's also quite famous for Games Workshop, so <laughs> that might oh, Games that Workshop Nottingham based. My... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just on the outskirts of mm. Nottingham. And I don't know how long it's been based in Nottingham, but it's uh, like Games Workshop, well, Warhammer World, as it's now known, is there. And as a youth, I knew people who worked there, and they'd take me to. Uh, Warhammer World and show me all of the wonderful dioramas that they had there and made me feel very inadequate as I was terrible at painting and playing, <laughs> <laughs> playing tabletop games. But, you know, I, I spent a lot of my life uh, between the ages of about nine and 14 thinking about Games Workshop miniatures and feeling inadequate compared to other people. So, you know, it, I feel like it's, it was quite formative, as it is, I think, for a lot of British role players and war gamers, really. Mm, so was that uh, that large shadow of Games Workshop your <laughs> introduction and awareness with sort of the idea of what role playing games were? I I don't know. I sort of felt like it pushed me in the opposite direction because I was so. I mean, I was really bad at Games Workshop. I was, I'm very bad at painting. I don't have the patience for it. I'm I'm an absolute terrible war gamer. Like just unbelievably bad. Um, I think. I think my record was losing within about two rounds. Really, I mean, I didn't have enough miniatures to make it, to make it, uh, to make it work. But <laughs> you know, I, I was always very bad at it, and I think that sort of pushed me into the opposite direction. Because when I was, when my, when my friends around me had like um, lots of games workshop stuff, and they had the the codices, the codexes that um, 
that were produced for Warhammer 40k. I loved them because they were full of all this really interesting lore. And um, I mean, you're probably getting a theme here, but like in, in general, I'm much more about the narrative and the, uh, I'm not really interested in the mechanical crunch of what happens when you roll a scatter die. You know, I'm more, well, what stories is this battle telling? What's the overall, what's the overall arc of this battle you know and i think that probably set me aside from quite a lot of other <laughs> 13 14 year olds who are interested in warhammer but you know i think it was quite formative but perhaps by pushing me in almost literally the complete opposite direction so <laughs> yeah i guess if something casts so much of its shadow it makes sense that any reaction to it is sort of about it in some way yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I think I sort of go away now. I mean, later when I was kind of uh, maybe in my early 20s, I looked at games like Inquisitor and um, I'm trying to think of what they're called, like Rogue Heres- uh, Rogue Trader and Dark Heresy, like which, which are really good, quite well-written role-playing games about the Warhammer 40k universe. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of wish I'd held on to my miniatures and were able to play these. Um, I mean, Rogue Trader is like, uh, it's really interesting because I've played it once and thought this is kind of my thing because I sort of like D100 systems. Then I listened to an actual play of it on what the One Shot Network where everybody died and they were like, actually, this is this is quite a lethal system. <laughs> you know, this is sort of OSR before OSR was the thing. So right. It, it, it's interesting. Like, yeah, it, it's that very long, it is a long shadow and it's like, I'm still vaguely interested in 40k, I'm still vaguely interested in the Warhammer fantasy role-playing game, but I, I guess from kind of an academic interest more than a, more than a, this is a game I want to go out and play, I'm very excited by, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I understand there, I get what you mean. So do you live on, still live in Nottingham or did you... Did you leave? No, I I left. I went to university in Sheffield. I was there for four and a bit years. Uh, And then I moved to Leeds, where I still live. So, uh, cool. Cool. Yeah, gradually creeping up north. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My life is the strange opposite, where I was born um, in Chester and then gradually got more sort of self. And I sort of imagine at some point this is like a slingshot. And I'll be fired, I don't know, all the way up to Scotland somehow. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I mean, that that does sound quite nice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so that like these different places you lived out, how, how, I guess it sounds like you've mostly lived in cities, but in comparatively smaller cities within the UK. Do you feel like the sense of like what a city is is something that influences much of your writing or how you think about setting or even just about how you think about people in a place that's an interesting question because like i didn't live in the center of nottingham like i was sort of on the outskirts and in a place that's that was quite close to not open countryside but kind of what you might call the edge lands which is the sort of link between the countryside and the city and in Sheffield I mean I don't know how well you know Sheffield but it's super green like you can walk from one side of the city to the other without leaving a park if you're careful um so 
and and then like on the west of Sheffield, obviously you've got the ridiculously easy access into the Peak District. So I never really felt like I lived in the middle of a city, even when I did live in the middle of a city. Um, and then in Leeds as well, um, I, I live in North Leeds now, and it's so close to the countryside, you know, like you can see, you can almost, not quite, you can almost see Ilkley Moor from my house, which is, I don't know, quite a famous moor, shall we say, <laughs> for various reasons. And it's just like, I've never really felt that attached to cities. I, again, it's kind of like that academic interest of, I kind of want to like cities, but at the same time, I'm just not that interested. I sort of feel a bit more of a, a kinship with countryside and a kinship with land. I mean, perhaps this is a very towny thing to say. <laughs> never actually worked that out, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just nostalgia for something that I've never actually experienced. I mean, that's a very like human re reaction, though, especially when it comes to our. I guess also thinking about like the shepherdess and art that's drawing on which is often about sort of nature and in conversation mm. stuff which is not always necessary direct from people it's a thought that's occurring to me sort of in a half-formed gestate area yeah yeah i mean i i sort of think i don't know like what i've been thinking about with the shepherdess and other things I've been doing recently about um, I've got this really long winded idea about doing something about uh, cattle drovers, which, which I think would be really cool and a really interesting way to tell narratives about landscape and things. And it's all kind of coming together in this. Actually, maybe this is what I want to write role playing games about. Maybe this is what I want to do writing about and make art about in general. It's just like, maybe this kind of pastoral landscape which is both beautiful and in many ways brutal is is maybe what i want to think about in kind of contrary to other people who write about cities and how humans live in cities well what about how landscapes live around people um and the contrary as well you know is, is that an interesting enough story to make to make a game about is that an interesting enough story to make you know just a weird random encounter <laughs> in mm. another role-playing game about um and it's it, it's just something that i've become gradually more and more interested in um i don't know <laughs> perhaps as i've got older it's difficult to say yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i think you know maybe older maybe at least relates to like changing perspective and moving and stuff mm. i definitely feel like I think more about place as a adult who's lived in different places and yeah, then I would, then I, and I, to be clear, I'm not saying this as a criticism of this. Then I imagine like my siblings or other people I grew up with who have not really moved from the place we grew up. Think about it. Yeah. But maybe that is idle speculation. I obviously don't know the interior of anyone else's mind. Um, well, I feel like, if you move between places and I think this is true of a lot of things that you kind of have more of a questioning about what it is about that place that you like, what it is about that place that you don't like. And if you stay in one place and don't question that, then perhaps you don't 
gain quite so much of an understanding about it. I, I think that about a lot of things that like if you go away and question something like quite deeply, then perhaps you get more of an understanding from it than somebody who never goes away and questions it, but is also very content in in what that is. I mean, <laughs> I'm being really coy about this, but you know, I think that applies to a lot of things um, that some of which are very intrinsically linked to our identity and some of which are maybe more tangentially linked to identity and i don't know where i'm going with this but (laughs) you know i think both viewpoints are completely valid like it's totally fine to just be really comfortable in in a place and just like be happy there or it's equally happy to have itchy feet and want to go away and explore and live in loads of different places and sometimes we don't have that choice sometimes we're forced into circumstance and that's also obviously a valid point of view so yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a huge thing to, I guess, hold in your head. Um, I guess thinking back to growing up, though, do you have a clear idea of what you wanted to... Do you have either a memory of some of the things you wanted to be when you were a kid, or do you have a clear memory of like uh, wanting yeah. something for? <laughs> I think when I, was about, when I was about four or five, which is the age of my middle child now, um, I wanted to be a, a racehorse jockey. Um Excuse me. I'm not. I'm not a tall person, but I am too tall to be a jockey. So um, that was quite quite soon, obviously ruled out. Um, as I got older, you know, sort of ten, eleven, and then for quite a long time after, I thought, you know, what I want to be. I want to be a fiction author, and I think that that stuck with me for a long time. And I did. I did a lot of creative writing when I was little. You know, I was writing poetry. I was writing. Was writing novels. I was writing short stories loads of different things uh i don't know like writing screenplays and stuff like probably i mean it was obviously all terrible but i think developing that creative writing knack and habit when i was younger like that's something that i think is really important if you want to then go away and be a creative person later in life um and i think that that kind of carried on sorry did you finish much of the writing you were attempting when you were younger? I I mean, it's easy to write a poem. <laughs> Everything else you need stamina for and mm. um, you need to have a clear idea of where you're going. And I think when I was probably 12, maybe I finished the first, you know, multi-chapter thing that I was writing. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And I think probably about that time, you know, you're kind of you're kind of being pushed in various directions at school, you know, you're, you're, people are saying, well, what do you actually want to be when you grow up? You know, what are you good at? <laughs> and, and this is kind of the point where I was thinking, actually, maybe I'm not good at that. Maybe maybe what I want to be is like uh, a lawyer or a solicitor or, you know, later, maybe what I want to be is an architect or the, later still when kind of everybody had said, I don't think you'd be a very good architect. Not just like random people, but like architect departments that I was applying to university at the, oh, wow. <laughs> saying you know you're probably it's probably not suited to this so at that point going away and saying well maybe i'd like to be maybe i'd like to be an engineer because i think i would be good at and actually you know i am still an engineer of sorts and i am quite good at it you know that that's fine but at the same time there's there's kind of this 11 year old me saying I, don't you still want to tell stories <laughs> don't you still want to go away and and do creative writing don't you want to make make art i guess um and 
yeah, I guess <laughs> probably do still would still like to do that. So, you know, coming back around to it now when in my thirties thinking, oh yeah, actually making games and telling stories, that's really good fun. <laughs> do more of that. Do you feel so obviously you mentioned writing, but you also did have an awareness of what role-playing games were more when you were younger I guess thinking about like the first time you did um, sit down and were trying to write like an RPG, did you did you find that was almost thinking like um, a transition between more um, straightforward fiction uh, or other kinds of writing, or was it something you didn't necessarily even think of in those terms? I think uh, I'm trying to think when the first time I sat down and started thinking about doing game design was. I think I was probably at university. And I'd been playing quite a lot of Seventh Sea, which I love. It's just one of my favorite role-playing games. And uh, I'd I'd been in a year-long campaign as part of the university role-playing game club. And I'd then I GM'd a game on and off for a couple of years for some of my friends. We had a great time doing that. And then I was like, "Oh, I'm quite good at this GMing thing. Maybe I could maybe I could write a game." Which is, you know, that's the classic. (laughs) That's the classic. the siren song yeah exactly you know you you think you can do it because you've you've read all the role-playing game books and you're kind of like oh i know how to do that and so i go away and i'm like i'm gonna write a really crunchy steampunk game um that uses cards as a as a randomization factor and it's all about i think i don't know what was it about It it was like sort of a dystopian steampunk about how engineers are actually really evil um and as an engineer, I would say, you know, that's not necessarily that inaccurate. But like if engineers run ran the world, it was basically a dystopia. And that's that's kind of where that that all came from. And this was a bad game. Like I never finished writing it on account of it. It was just way, way too overall. Everything about it was terrible. And I wasn't concentrating on the stuff that I was actually interested in, which was the law, you know, the narrative part of it. Uh, the setting and like what stories you would tell with it. So I, I, it, it's kind of that. I think I was probably not mature enough to write a game that I would have actually played, and that feels really weird to say, but I think that's probably the case. And having written stuff since that I have played and thought, ah, oh, actually, do you know what? That was quite good. I enjoyed that. <laughs> And um, I think I think twenty year old me was not capable of doing that, uh, and unfortunately, thirty five year old me probably can write a game and get quite a lot of entertainment out of it. And that's <laughs> I think that that's a good progression to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was going to say it would be sadder the other way, but obviously everyone's life takes their own place or whatever. Um, let me wonder, um, do you feel like you have more of an understanding of yourself as a player of games from having uh, partook in game design? That's, um, I think I understand more what I like. And I think the first role-playing game I've ever played was probably um, the starter set of three and a half edition of Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it at all. My friends didn't enjoy it either because it was just, it felt very mechanical. 
and it felt very forced and it wasn't something that I was enjoying. So I've basically never played Dungeons and Dragons. And I think what I've realized over the years is what I, I don't like really crunchy games that put you on a particular path, but it's, it's sort of more than that. It's kind of, I actually really, really like very narrative heavy games that deal with interesting subject matter and I think that has meant that that's what I kind of want to write games about as well. You know, I, I don't want to write crunchy games. <laughs> I, so, so I think to answer your question, my game design practice has kind of developed from understanding what I like rather than who I am as a player, uh, if that sure. makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand that. I believe that makes. Um, so you mentioned um, engineering is what you do now, and I assume you studied um, engineering at university because I'm under the impression you're not allowed to just go and do that otherwise. You shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do know people who have, but uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was at university studying structural engineering of all things. Um, I now work as a civil engineer, uh, sort of, but what I actually do is computational modeling, which is um, very interesting. What I actually do is computational flood modeling, so I'm very connected to rivers and landscapes, which would probably not shock you. Ah, um, that makes sense. I was going to ask, because engineering, my, underst- my idea of it as someone who um, exists only really in a very um, far away humanity space, um, it's very like i i think of it as very uh like like almost like blocky and about um processes and machines whereas i was gonna ask like oh that's interesting because of the association with nature that's in a lot of your recent work but that makes sense to me that i guess yeah civil engineering is mm. all about the relationship between people and society and the land i think and th- this is really getting into the weeds of it, really. But, like, flooding is really... It It kind of brings together a lot of what I think of as game design practice as well. Because it brings together people and places and emotion. And, like, I just think rivers are really cool. But, like, when rivers flow down the street and go through your house, obviously that's a traumatic event that's that's a terrible <laughs> thing to happen to you and like bringing together the idea of a river bringing you a lot of joy and peace and calming but also being something that can feel really threatening and i was told a few years ago about like some uh kids who live in hull Hull floods a lot because it's like 90% under high watermark or something. Um, and there are a lot of kids in Hull who've had their houses flooded at least once. Um, and like them developing sort of a fear of the rain. Mm. And that's really interesting because that that sort of says this thing that a lot of people like find a nuisance or find comforting perhaps or calming. They like that sound. But these these people these people who live in one specific place that has a, a very different connection to water and rivers are have a completely different emotional reaction to this. And like 
I just find all of these there's these three tied together things to be really interesting <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense like our associations with things are not set by like some kind of like core nature they're influenced by like the experiences we have mm. it's really yeah. interesting and i can see how that does apply to some of the themes and things you've focused on in sure work. yeah yeah what um switching tracks in a i'm not good at um segues on this podcast i've realized which is fine um <laughs> i've decided i don't hugely care about it but i've definitely noticed i'm not good at segues i was just gonna ask yeah. what kind are, are you a wide reader were you a wide reader have you been have you um... been on you know peaks and valleys with reading i <laughs> this is really outing myself i think i don't read a lot of fiction um i probably read maybe six books a year which is probably like criminally low compared to a lot of my peers <laughs> um i i really like speculative fiction i really like sci-fi and fantasy but maybe not like classic stuff I was saying the other day that I think Lord of the Rings is a bad book and people were very shocked by this. Um, but like, I really like Octavia Butler. Um, I really like, oh man, what's his name? Ken Liu, amazing author. Um, I read Clara and the Sun recently, which is absolutely fantastic book that's full of really emotional responses to like artificial intelligence and feels very much like a book of our time. Um, I can't even remember who that's by Kazuo Ishiguro. I so that sort of that sort of speculative fiction of fantasy and sci-fi stripes is the kind of thing that I'm really interested in reading. But I also like really weird books like that are about a very specific subject. Um, non-fiction, non-fiction, a very specific subject that most people would find really incredibly dry. So I recently bought loads of books about drovers so that I could do some research. I just find it all extremely fascinating. <laughs> I bought a book called um, Edgelands, which is by Robert Simon. No, I've, I've forgotten who it's by, but it's it's a fantastic book which explores the weird spaces around cities that are not quite the countryside and are not quite the city and the, an overwhelmingly interesting book. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I wouldn't say that I was a wide reader and I wouldn't say that I was a particularly diligent reader, but I am very interested in a <laughs> very niche subset of, of kind of fiction and then just nonfiction that I think is a subject which is very interesting, you know? <laughs> And that makes sense. Thinking about, I guess, influence of writing, do you feel like the slightly like slice of fiction you are interested in influences much around like your writing style or how you, you know, you can, can um... construct prose? Or do you think that influence comes more from the, or do you do you think you pull influence there from the nonfiction stuff, or is the nonfiction stuff you're reading more an influence in terms of knowledge and information? Definitely knowledge and information, but I guess if you were to examine my games, 
they don't feel very prosy. I, mm. I think I write in quite a matter-of-fact way. I think the biggest exception to this is Ghostbox, which I you know, published recently, and that's it sort of written... Has prompt work, obviously. And it's sort of written in in universe as well. Like it's written the the latest draft, yeah. which will be released relatively soon, is like you are receiving a letter, and all of the all of the information that you need to go away and do the prompts for that is is basically in in universe text. So it's telling you who this person is by way of like implicit in, in, an implicit explanation of who this person is rather than an explicit one and i think that it was really fun to write but i'm not sure i could do it for anything longer than about you know 4000 words <laughs> which is how long ghostbox was um just cuz i don't think i have the stamina to write full length works of fiction <laughs> mm which I guess the more emphasizing of prose you're doing, it is taking from that place. Yeah, I think there is like um, to something like the shepherdess, and I could see something uh, like a loud noise in a quiet place, like an almost instructional quality to, um, like a very like sort of clear-eyed instructional quality to things mixed with. Pers- mm. Like I, I'm trying. Failing at words here, but I'm trying to say something. Instructional <laughs> mixed with things that are sharing like your perspective, and it often feels like quite um, grounded in the fact that it is it is you writing. If that makes any sense, and feel free to disagree yeah. with that if you want. Yeah, definitely. Um, interestingly, it's sort of the kind of thing that um, my colleagues say about my technical writing as well. That it's written in a very matter of fact way but that they can tell it's written by me, which is quite... I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I think it's... I think... I don't know. As a as a game designer, <laughs> I would say that I think it's really important to have yourself in a work because otherwise it can feel like anybody could have written that. Well, maybe, maybe that's not quite true, but like... Um, I don't like the corporate tone that some role-playing games take. And I'm looking particularly at the thicker works of stuff that, that do come out of companies. Like, you wouldn't call... Well, you wouldn't call nearly all of them corporations. You'd say, that's a small company that, you know, most... the All of the people who work for that company wouldn't even fit on a bus. You know, it's... Uh, they're all small companies, but they take a very similar kind of tone throughout their works that is kind of very reverent self-reverent whereas I, I i don't feel like that you know i feel like my perspective is interesting my perspective is important and that's how you are going to understand what what it is that i'm trying to get across with this game i think that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> mm. um that's very interesting yeah. yeah it's just me the sitting there bashing companies who produce books really which <laughs> is maybe not that cool but <laughs> Um, sorry, I, I think I, I think I sort of felt like that I felt particularly aggrieved about it when it was a game that I kind of felt like I wanted to care about which was the Doctor Who role playing game 
And I flicked through it and I was like, uh, yeah, this is really cool. And this is covering like all of space and time. That's fantastic. But also I'm, I'm just not remotely interested in the way that you've written this game. And then it could go away and find another game about, about Time Lords with the serial numbers scraped off and be a lot more interested in it because it's written by, I don't know, like some weird one-person band operating out of a shed in Tennessee. Like, who knows? I would be much more interested in that as a role-playing game than something produced, even if it's by fans, but with with a kind of corporate mindset. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for um, work, even if it feels uh, more like flawed in flawed in very heavy quotation marks, obviously. Um, <laughs> but oh no, I mean um, this 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 tin roof game by the guy in Tennessee. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's terrible. This theoretical game, but, but yeah, like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to go out there and bash Cubicle Seven. No, it makes a lot of sense, and I I think there is something yeah, like the like a flawed work having. Just being able to still see like you're engaging with like the uh, work of pausing on words. I'm pausing on words because I feel like I'm about to reinvent auteur theory, which I otherwise don't like. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, a sort of case of like actually a, a connection to something maybe more human. That sounds very pretentious, but I'll land with that because I'd rather be pretentious than um, reinventing auteur theory. <laughs> in a sideways thing i guess to other mediums and stuff so we talked a bit about so we talked yeah about breeding um and i was wondering do you ever notice sort of subtler influences from different mediums mm. i don't think i don't think subtly is the word um what i really like i'm not i don't massively like film I'm I'm going to get crucified by people who are friends with me on Twitter, but I, I'm not a huge fan of film. What I actually really like is television. Um, and I like, I actually really like both good high quality drama that other people enjoy. And that is widely regarded as good. Um, I also like really, really trashy stuff. I'm a massive fan of EastEnders. I'm a huge fan of the archers, which is like, just, it sounds incredibly sad to say it out loud. I really like trashy soap operas because I just think they're so much fun. And actually, I I have written games about this in the past and just thought, you know what? Let's just lean into this. You like weird, quiet pastoral dramas. Maybe you should just go out and write those things. (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, I, I feel very influenced by visual media. Like, I like visual arts i like landscape art i i love seeing landscape not photography but like when landscape is filmed from a drone as part of a tv program i love that (laughs) um i like watching country file just for that you know (laughs) just think it's interesting and um i like to see what places look like both from a human perspective, but also from um, from the landscape's perspective as well. You know, what does it what does it feel like to be a hill? No, that's that's daft. But um, <laughs> what might it feel like to live on that hill? I think is is maybe a more interesting question. Which is sort of what the shepherdess as as a role playing game was was kind of about. You know, 
how yeah, does this person feel connected to this place when they have literally no other things to think about um and and maybe that's maybe that's interesting <laughs> yeah so so then these, these aren't subtle influences at all i i would say that what i read uh you know speculative fiction i would say that that is more the subtle influence in in many respects do you think when you're thinking of influences like things like um eastenders and the archers these sort of pastoral dramas or no sorry archers yeah pastoral eastenders with the sort of um i want to say pulpier but that, that carries different implications soapier no soapier. no i was blanking it, it on is... the word soap soap um, it is really pulpy. That is an accurate yeah. statement. Yeah, I, I <laughs> think that is accurate. Like that. But I feel like if I say that, and people who don't know what EastEnders are, I think they get a very different idea of what that show is. Even though I think it is also you know, accurate. Uh, sorry, before before you carry on your sentence, but like if you think back to what pulp fiction actually means, it means super super cheaply produced books that are produced in in serial by effectively by somebody working on an algorithm and actually that is not inaccurate when applied to a soap opera so yeah it's i think the more modern like televisual equivalent like in many direct ways rather than things that use pulp fiction as an influence yeah yeah like pulp fiction yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um i just was wondering when you're thinking about converting these things are you thinking about um any sort of medium specific elements or are you more thinking about the kinds of stories they tell and how you are taking stories into um, a different space? I think, I think with the game I wrote about EastEnders and the archers and I don't know, other stuff, which is called Cardigan Lane and was published in one of the Far Horizon Short Games Digest. I can't tell you which one it is because I can't remember. Um, it was a lot about what is kind of now very casually referred to as genre emulation, which is not a term I particularly like because I think it's a bit dismissive. But it, it is, it's that idea, as you said, of kind of taking stories and characters that are massively larger than life and transporting them into a world where you can tell your own stories to a kind of set beat in the background to a kind of this is what's going to happen in this session this is what this character is going to do and you know like that's what that's sort of what Powered by the Apocalypse... This isn't a Powered by the Apocalypse game, but it, it's sort of what Powered by the Apocalypse does, isn't it? Like, the, the intent is to take character types and story beats and put them together in a world where you can tell your own stories based on interesting... Uh, on, on works of fiction and works of art that you're particularly interested in. So, like, I feel like Apocalypse World does that in terms of Mad Max and other post-apocalyptic fiction. I feel like... Um, Monster Hearts does that in terms of that. that is exactly what Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, you know? <laughs> it's kind of... It, it's all those things tied together that, that allow you to go away and bring together the kind of stories that you're interested in and make, make your own way through that. And Cardigan Lane, to me, was just a way of saying, well, if you wanted to go away and tell British soap opera stories, 
what are the story beats and character types that would allow you to do that and and what are the the ways that you can tell that that, that you can make this game that would tell those stories effectively and um and i guess maybe i was <laughs> successful at that i'm not sure but um and and again with other with other stories i think it's it's that same thing of wanting to take a specific feeling of what a genre is and make that into something that, that you can use to tell your own stories i don't think i do that very much anymore <laughs> hmm. it does feel um, like um more of the recent games of red fields have been a move away from that and i guess i was going to ask a bit about visual art um so if I was thinking with the yeah. shepherdess it has um its cover and in its um which is a pastoral painting um from i'm blanking on the era but i did remember this at the time um it's it's a romantic piece i can't tell you when it is either it's 1860s maybe yeah i was blanking on romantic um <laughs> it's taking like that as it's almost like core image and it's also in the book you talk about um that this was a subject of of painterly interest and it seemed to me like something that was more perhaps in conversation with other mediums engagement with the same topics rather than emulating in the same way or even less emulating if mm. we want to use a less like prerogative word if we were just saying something like um translating or adapting but it feels more like in conversation than in a um yeah attempt to traverse something i don't know if you I sort agree of, or disagree yeah. with that. no I, I what what the shepherdess sort of was was me thinking hey you know the shepherdess is kind of a really common theme in romantic paintings of a certain era and a common theme in kind of poetry of that era as a kind of noble savage in a way that's a really it's a really hackneyed phrase that i'm pretty sure is fairly offensive but yeah probably quite laden it, with it's it's yeah it but in in a kind of way of more like brave new world than you know a, a colonialist narrative in the anyway <laughs> <laughs> i think what i mean really is that the shepherdess as a fictional character is kind of misrepresented just off the bat because there's no actual understanding i mean there probably was significantly better understanding of what that rural traditional role was in the in the 19th century but i feel like what it was so it was smashing together me me looking at loads of paintings and going that's quite cool i'm really interested in that and then going away and actually reading a little bit about shepherding and thinking that's quite cool as well yeah let's just smash those two things together so it, it comes from a place of <laughs> kind of artistic and aesthetic interest and maybe being a bit tongue-in-cheek with playing with something that is almost entirely a historical <laughs> And trying to smash that together with something which is maybe interesting and not very widely known to people, like what a shepherd's year would look like. Hmm. And and I think that's kind of that kind of weird mashup of 
aesthetic plus factual stuff is is maybe maybe where my game design is at at the moment. <laughs> No, it's really interesting. I, it's bringing yeah. the fra- phrases like "slice of life" or "vignette" to mm-hmm. to mind. Yeah, but I feel like and, they're otherwise sort of carry different. Values. And I think like the word "pastoral" as well gets bandied around role playing games, and maybe is a bit. I don't know. Like people say, "Wonder Home" is a pastoral game, and I, I don't know. Maybe I agree with that. It is a little bit about landscape. It's a little bit about maybe a quieter but greater theme and i i think that that idea of yeah slice of life and what does somebody else's life look like i think that lends itself really well to solo games which is another kind of thing that is kind of more so about a thousand times more common nowadays than it was when I started playing role playing games in my day, yeah, you know, of course, <laughs> which was not that long ago. But... Yeah, I guess uh... I've been playing role playing games for about twenty years, <laughs> so maybe in my day it's, it's reasonably accurate. But... Yeah, it's scale, scale. I uh, like yeah. I only start. I only probably paid attention to role playing games um, around twenty twenty. So. I think there were some reasons around then that solo games got more popular, but I can't exactly recall what. <laughs> no, it doesn't make much sense that, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, another sort of um, moving track, you work as a project director, writer, and editor for Far Horizons, which you've mentioned before. I was wondering how you feel like your work in that space informs the work you do more frequently, oh. just as Marx as High Water. I think that's... Um... It's such an interesting question because had I not, how do I put this? Had I not done work for Far Horizons, and I should say that I, when I started at Far Horizons, it was San Gennaro and I was just writing and then I started doing editing afterwards and then I started doing project direction afterwards because I'd seen the whole process that it took to take from somebody's weird game idea to having that game idea published in an anthology. And I sort of took that and ran with it. And then I managed, I could run projects. I mean, I ran the anthology for a bit, which was fantastic. And I still sort of do that role uh, in, in a slightly different capacity. But understanding that publishing process from draft to document if we're going to use d's for both of them um is something that i did not have any understanding of before and it gave me the confidence to say actually i pretty much know what i'm doing so i could go away and publish something that's quite ambitious i mean the one that the one that springs to mind is a loud noise in a quiet place which was on kickstarter and it's not it's not by any stretch of the imagination an ambitious project it's a 16 page scene um but it required me to understand how to go out and commission artists it required me to find an editor who i felt comfortable using it required me to understand what layout designers needed it required me to understand what my print shop needed and if i hadn't done work for far horizons making games i would not have understood 90 percent of the terms that i needed to in order to complete a game 
It's not saying that as a naive game designer that you can't do that, but I think it gave me a massive advantage. Um, and I think that's definitely something that has encouraged me to make bigger and bigger and more ambitious projects over time. Um, yeah, it's easier to find your way through the wilderness if you can see footsteps. Yeah. And just like connections as well, like Far Horizons, I think, has 30 to 40 active members at the moment. And that's just a lot of people <laughs> in the space who I think share at least some of my worldviews and at least some of what I believe in as a game designer, but also like ideologically. And I, I think it's very interesting to be able to connect to a lot of people who share your ideas but have different skill sets and that just allows you to create something that is it feels like by spreading that out amongst other people it kind of in a way feels more personal which is like completely contrarian idea but um i, but, I think i get what you mean like when yeah. you spread a, a rollout um someone like an individual's engagement with one thing is slightly different than an individual yeah. engaging with everything it it brings out what you think your themes are but i think beyond that it also allows you to focus on what your themes are because you don't have to think about layout <laughs> you don't have to think about illustration you don't have to think about what you're going to do on every single page and whether or not it's all spelled correctly because you've got other people doing that labor for you um and that just lets you say, oh, actually, if I wanted to write this game to be specifically about this thing, I could just go away and do that. That's not that's not something that I need permission to do. And perhaps that's one of the most liberating things about working in a small team as well. And again, I, I don't think I could have felt the confidence to commission editors and proofreaders and whatever had I not worked with them collaboratively on a project where everybody was invested in it by virtue of the more work you put in the more money you would take from it so... <laughs> mentioned themes there and that's such a useful segue to something else i wanted to ask about you describing your hr work as leaning heavily on exploring social and philosophical themes and we've talked about that um here already because we talked about how the shepherdess has a kind of approach to loneliness and about relationship with nature I can see how like a loud noise in a quiet place is exploring like very specific personal experiences, which also relate to ideas of like accommodation and such. I was wondering when, um, because I wonder this a lot about um, people who, who've returned to similar themes or have preoccupation with theming in general, do you approach games at the moment or in the past from a sort of, um, theme first perspective of oh i want to explore this thing in games or do you find like you discover what the themes of the work you're doing is mm. during the process i think i mean so i think that depends on the piece <laughs> i think with with a loud noise in a quiet place that was about a very specific experience an experience of temporary hearing loss and actually, as I was writing the second edition, which was the which was the published version, we we kind of because I did quite a lot of sensitivity consultation on that and spoke to quite a lot of deaf and hard of hearing people. 
the final product that came out there was quite different from the first edition of the game. So I think for that one, the themes definitely came out, not just in the writing, but in the kind of post-writing stage as well. And in kind of the in kind of the publication stage. So that was quite an interesting experience. With the Shepherdess, which is largely unedited. Um and it's just it, it's just a stream of consciousness, really. Um that game, I think I drew out a lot of what I wanted to say as I was writing the prompts. I I found that what it was about was about like the kind of yes look we're in this place and it's kind of beautiful but also loneliness is kind of brutal and violent and nature is kind of brutal and violent and maybe (laughs) maybe all of those things are linked and that so so that's one thing but it comes from this idea of well i want to write a game which is about a topic rather than a theme so i I guess, in a very roundabout way to answer your question, <laughs> the the answer is that the theme develops through writing in in a way which kind of makes me think, well, actually, does that make writing play, emergent play? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a kind of very airy-fairy way of saying something. But um, I think it's interesting to write a game basically without really thinking about it and then going back and finding out what you've written and finding out that what you've written is either complete nonsense or perhaps there's some kind of profundity in there which you might be able to bring out with editing and careful layout and stuff and that's that's interesting in itself and like with somebody who has at least one or two major projects on their mind at any one time I'm really hoping that when I do finally come to sit down and write out what those games are, that I will be able to work out what the themes are at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand that completely. Um, this is interesting and completely uh, understandable, yeah. I feel like Ghost Box, when I was reading it, invites the player to create a sense of place by populating residents near the post um especially when you're saying like the 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 next update will involve sort of um presentation of things in fiction but what i was curious about was did you have much of a specific setting in mind when writing the game or did you envision that as almost like a sort of one-sided collaboration between the text and the player in terms of creating the world that's yeah um Ghostbox sort of fell out of a conversation I had with James Chip. Um, do you know James? Not really a, interesting not person. Um, sort of writes weird OSR games and games also also a lot games about landscape and plants and moss. Uh, and it's just a very interesting person to talk to. Um, we had a conversation about a postbox which is near their house in the middle of a wood. And James sort of asked me, who do you think uses this post box? And like, that was basically the genesis of ghost box. <laughs> um, so in a way, when I was writing it, I was thinking there is a post box in a wood and people use it, but they're not really sure why they use it because they're not even sure it gets collected. And I had this very specific 
image in my mind, which was kind of reinforced by me looking through stuff on Unsplash and just finding pictures of weird post boxes. And um, that, so that's very much influenced by a sense of setting, like you said, um, but not really a, Uh, but also at the same time wanting to encourage people to think about just post boxes in weird places. Like I must have told this story three or four times, but it there's this post box in there was a post box in Manchester train station in Manchester train station doesn't exist. Um in one of the main train stations in Manchester. And the Royal Mail decided it was too much effort to go onto the platform and collect this post, so they nailed it shut. But at some point, the piece of wood fell off and people kept posting letters in it for something like 35 years. And oh eventually it got it got too full um, and there was posts coming out the top. So somebody reported this and they emptied this post box and out came all of this mail, like 35 years worth of dead letters. And I just thought, holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's make let's let's think about places that have weird post boxes that people are using let's make a community around them let's let's think of some weird citizens who might live there like the guy who is obsessively writing love letters to person who's to a person who's not responding mm. let's think about the spy who's been there for 20 years without knowing what their mission is let's think about uh i don't know the people who are sending thank you cards to their estranged aunt for some reason like all these weird people let's let's get them in let's get them in this place let's get them writing stories and let's make let's make a place that feels real but also surreal at the same time you know let's let's try i mean Somebody said to me, I'd like to use Ghostbox as kind of a world-building exercise for a community. Do you think that would work? I, yeah, it would, but it would give you such weird characters that I'm not... You know, it would be for a very specific game, I think. But yeah, it, could it be has very a, cool. yeah. a taste of the sort of absurd, but in a way that is very sort of then grounded in, in feeling and um, environment almost. Kind of, yeah, and kind of the emotion and sadness, particularly, and kind of abandonment, but also, like, you don't keep sending letters in a postbox that you think is blocked up unless you have some vain hope as well. So there's, throughout throughout it, I've tried to, I think, I think the second draft, which you, which you're not privy to, is, is better, because... <laughs> It's got these vain ideas that there's sort of a hope to this as well. It's not just really sad and depressing. And you can play it in a way that has whatever emotions pinned to it as you like. But I think the hope is always kind of there. I think it's an interesting (laughs) engagement with Sync where you presumably know what the possibilities are. And you wouldn't do it if there was no hope, but also you might not do it if there was certainty either. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I think about the the forlorn, which was kind of the first. That that's the one that's about the person who's writing to their lover and they're not getting any response. Like, you you just you just couldn't keep doing that if you knew there was no way you would get a reply. So you must always have this little this little hope in your mind that 
you are going to get a reply this time that it is going to happen and i don't know i that that was one of the the kind of starting seeds like when i realized this was a game that i wanted to write that's where that's where i started because that felt like a an interesting story that you could tell but certainly not the only story yeah switching tracks again i'm sort of um bouncing around i'm not gonna segue i've noticed it this episode but i also look back and see it's always been true in other episodes um a loud noise <laughs> in a quiet place focuses a lot on translating like your experience of temporary hearing loss into play what i found interesting when i was thinking about was the section where the player outlines their character is left quite open um yeah um i imagine something quite sort of reality based um but that also may just be a sort of context or stuff i'm i'm bringing two things um i know i was i guess wondering what was be what was maybe informing that decision of how open things were there i think i think i was going for a sort of game design mood where i didn't want people to make characters in a mechanical sense and this is really driven by my experience of games like fall of magic where you don't define anything at the start of play except what symbol you're going to use to represent your character um and what I wanted to take from that was what can we do with looking at characters who are basically just defined by the answers to three quite short questions. I can't even remember what the questions are because it's been a while since I looked at the text. Um, and the decision there is more about what can you learn about that person and their life through play and not just through play but through their experience of the world like i feel like a loud noise in a quiet place is a very first person game and it's if i'd written it nowadays it would have been a solo game and it was a duet game because i didn't know any better um and it's definitely a very first person game because the experience itself to me was very isolating and was a very first person. And I feel like throughout that experience, I learned things about myself, which I maybe didn't know, like how much I was dependent on certain sounds, how soothing I found certain sounds, how, how much I was reliant on one particular balance of senses and that's a very personal experience and trying to bring out that experience in a game is 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 a challenge and would be more of a challenge if you made more of a definition of what the character looked like at the start of play because i mm. think that would constrain you too much so when i've played through a loud noise in a quiet place i've generally gone down the lines of playing out what I think that person's life might look like for a few days and then I find what their relationships are I find who they rely on I find who's important to them 
and maybe like the chance encounters with a person who might just be a casual acquaintance and how that you know their response to what you're going through might shape what you're going through a little bit more might change how you relate to them or to other people and it's just a very <laughs> kind of revelatory experience and i would i mean that's that's really kind of tooting my own horn on it really but i think it has the potential to be to to help people to build empathy with people who are going through this experience or similar experiences or maybe more permanent experiences of the same nature and that that's my hope <laughs> that's that's always been my hope with that and my mission well not my mission but like my stated aim of a loud noise in a quiet place is that it's meant to politely build empathy um, i'm not sure that wording made it into the final draft i hope it did <laughs> yeah. but um it's it does make sense to me, yeah, that pursuit of empathy is perhaps easier when you're not necessarily seeing a character as building blocks you've put together at the start, but as a process you are going through yourself. Yeah. I think I've been a little bit influenced by the game 14 Days by Hannah Schaefer as well, which doesn't make a massive deal about setting up a character at the start of play. They're just they're sort of a skeleton of questions with answers that you hang a character over. Um, I was going to say something a lot more macabre than that, and I'm glad I didn't. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's that kind of maybe this is, maybe this is something that that is more um, more authorly. In fact, I'm, maybe it's not, but like. I don't want to say everything about my character at the start of the game. I don't want to write a 20-page backstory. I want to write a, uh, a two-paragraph description of what they look like and how they walk and then work out what that means thereafter. Yeah. Staying on that, I want, like, we've talked about this bit on this episode that this was influenced by your own personal experiences, and I believe you said it was... you of it as a first person game what was writing that way and putting yourself on the page so explicitly what was that like for you i guess in terms of like how did that feel to be doing that and really cathartic i i wrote this game um in the before times i used to cycle to work and it's like a nine mile cycle and i can't really concentrate on anything while i'm doing it because otherwise i'd get knocked off my bike um when I lost my hearing for a while, I had to get the bus to work. And getting the bus is really boring, and it gives you a lot of time to just think. Um, and I was feeling, like, absolutely miserable because I couldn't I couldn't relate to the people around me very well. I couldn't relate to my kids. I couldn't relate to my partner. Um, my colleagues were basically just ignoring me. Um, and I just sort of sat down and I started writing this game. I thought, well, why not? And so there was this real feeling of catharsis and getting something out into the world that felt very just like raw and emotional and turning that into a game that other people could play and enjoy was like, that was quite a nice experience 
overall. It it changed how I felt about that experience and made it more like maybe I can get something positive out of this. Maybe other people can get something positive out of this. And it that was in when did I do that? 2018, maybe. And the second edition was kickstarted in 2000 and maybe 2021. That sounds right. Um, so there was like a, a two and a half year gap between between those two. And a lot changed in my life, but like a lot changed in the draft. And like I said before, a lot came out of like consulting with other people who'd had, who who have deafness or um, some kind of hearing impairment that, that makes their life, you know, not difficult, but like very different to what I would understand as my balance of senses. And I think all of that coming together made it kind of less about my personal experience, but more just about a personal experience of what it's like to to have that experience. I'm just going to keep saying experience until it sounds like a normal word again. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think putting myself on the page, which I have done with other games as well, maybe unpublished games or maybe games that, uh, you know, I, I don't tell people are about myself. Um, I think it's just, it's a way of dealing with yourself and understanding your own identity in, in just in, in terms that maybe you think can be gamified, <laughs> I don't know. but like coming to terms with your own identity is, is an important thing. And something that I think maybe everybody should write games to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. And the thing interesting about the idea of games I don't tell people are about myself because I think that's probably true of some of my work as well. This is a. Sort I think of it's better my... to keep oh. your secrets sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, people think you're really weird. Um... I also, I also think there's a thing that, like, um, you know, engaging in autobiography or filtered autobiography, I think, can be um, really creatively satisfying. I also think it is probably frustrating if that becomes a reputation and there's an assumption that everything you do is that, um, which is yeah, that's risk true. Of being open about <laughs> parts of a process mm, mm. i think so like i've written i've written quite a few small games over the years that i think say something about me and i don't need to say that this is saying something about me because i think a lot of my experiences are not particularly unique to my in fact i know none of my experiences are unique to myself you know everybody has the same feelings from time to time and yeah like maybe we should just make games that that do say things about ourselves <laughs> that, that other people can relate to i think that's that, that should be the goal of game design <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well i think we're at time basically um thank you for coming on it was a really enlightening conversation where can people find you on social media whatever platforms that may be i don't know exactly when this episode comes out so as it currently stands twitter exists will it by the time of release no one can say <laughs> anyone's guess um you can find me on twitter being ttrpg's most horrible goose at 
I am Fofos, which is I A M P H O P H O S. Um, yeah, engage with me; it makes my day. Um, I am on Mastodon. I will only start looking at it once I have one fewer social media platform to engage with because it's too painful to do two. Um, most of the time you can find me on discord at a lot of places. Um, I'm on discord way too much. Um, but it's quite hard to kind of describe how to find me on discord. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that if, if you know, hard you know. or if I made that up, I do. Yeah. Um, it is marks-shepherd.carved.co. Um, you can find me there. Yeah, uh, I'm also the community manager for Far Horizons Co-op, so you can find me at the Far Horizons Twitter, where you'll probably also be able to find the Mastodon details for Far Horizons. Um, there is a Discord server for Far Horizons, which you're welcome to join. I don't know how you would do so. You can probably get a link from our newsletter, which will be linked from the Twitter page for now. Um, yeah, we're we're really good at social media at Far Horizons. We're just we're just the best. Um, and yeah, if you if you particularly liked hearing my voice, you can listen to the back back episodes of Yes Indeed Pod, which has now been taken over by Thomas Manuel. Um, and you can find my stuff on itch.io at marks-of-highwater.itch.io. Marks is with an X. Um, more Groucho than Carl, I would say. <laughs> uh, there's a fair amount of Carl in there as well. Um, and yeah, that, I think that I think that pretty much covers all the bases. Yeah, well, thank you. That's very comprehensive. Thank you again for coming on, and to my viewers, Absolutely. I'll catch you on thank the you. next episode of This Is Your Life Path. And in the meantime, reach for the sky. <laughs>